1: Afterfacing complete, please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard shirts and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. It's Groundhog Day! And I'm Jim Russ. Yes, indeed. We are still in coronavirus lockdown. We are. And it's going to extend for a bit longer, I believe. And it was, of course, a big week in technology, as always. There's a huge Linux malware thread out there. It's called DrovoRub. <laughs> Talk about that. It, DrovoRub as DrovoRub, is a pretty malicious piece of software. And there are major, major warnings out on it. And you've got to beware of counterfeit networking equipment. You know, we're, we're talking about not buying networking equipment from China, from uh, Huawei. But now they're actually in the supply chain, counterfeit hardware out there. And we'll talk about how to watch for that and what to do about it. Uh, this week we are going to feature uh, Francis... Elizabeth Allen, she was uh, a pioneer in the area of compiler development. She followed in the footsteps of Grace Hopper. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox.
1: Have you noticed any slowdown in the uh, mail heading into the mailbag?
2: No, not really. Is Is there a problem there?
1: Well, uh, I learned this morning that you know Baltimore has been having all kinds of mail difficulty. They've taken four oh, of the, four yes. of the sorting machines in Baltimore have been taken out of commission because they say that they don't need them right now.
2: Wow. Huh. So, so people just aren't aren't sending letters anymore.
1: That's what they claim. But a lot of people claim that they just simply aren't getting their mail. And I can tell you, I'm not getting much mail. I'm getting a lot. I still get the stupid junk mail flyers, but stuff that I. I'm expecting isn't showing up. Wow!
2: Fortunately, all of the mail that comes to Tech Talk is by email. It's
1: electronic. Well, there you go.
2: <laughs> electronic mail. So, so we're not using the the post office for any of our mail.
1: How very socially distant of you.
2: That's exactly. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim and the distinguished Mr. Big Boys. Distinguished um, how? The, the, sh- the show last week was another gem. I really loved all of it, particularly that observations from the bunker. I stumbled across this obituary for Frances Island, uh, Allen. She's a computer scientist known for her work on compiling. She died the, this last week at age 88. Now, you featured her March 27th, 2010, but perhaps she deserves another mention. Um I'm not much of a gamer, but I also noticed this week that there's a big controversy and drama around the Apple and Google Play stores. Epic, apparently Epic Software, which makes the game Fortnite, is going to, mark, is going to mock Apple's most iconic ad as revenge for the Fortnite app getting kicked off of the, uh, of the store. Do you have any insight on what's going on here? I'd like to hear your take on this story, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, thanks for reminding me of Frances Allen. I will feature her today. She's a real pioneer. She's a woman who persevered in a man's world. And she's got an interesting story, how she became a touring uh, Award winner. Really interesting. Now, as for Epic's Fight, they're rebelling against the 30% commission that Apple charges and Google charge for all in-game sales. Now, both Apple and Google charge these exorbitant fees, and they've got a monopoly on their platform, and they're extracting a high toll. In fact, if anyone makes an app that competes with one of their products, they kick it off the platform. Hmm. They are behaving in a very anti-competition manner. Um, now, in Apple, in Epic's view, Apple has become the new IBM. They are mocking the 1984 ad where all IBM PC users were were shown as uh, zombies sitting in a theater. And Apple came in and threw a sledgehammer at the screen and broke their trance. (laughs) Only Apple could save them. They've made an ad, which really, it's the same ad, only all the Apple users are zombies looking at the screen, and the screen is the platform, the sales, the app platform. And Epic comes in and throws this colorful tool at the screen and breaks it. They are saying that Apple and Google, because of their size, have become the new oppressive IBM. It's an interesting interesting gamble that Epic is taking what Epic did actually, rather than pay the 30 percent fee on the in-app purchases, they created a way to buy the upgrades to the game. You know, the, the uniforms and the, and the, the weapons, uh, buy them in a way that you bypass the Apple platform. And that violated the rules of service that Apple had. So Apple kicked them off. Uh, they also did it on the Google platform. So Google kicked them off. And now what Fortnite, uh, rather what Epic is trying to do is turn the, the millions of, of users against these companies t- to try to use that as negotiating leverage. I think this may, in fact, lead to some sort of antitrust action against both Apple and Google. It'll be interesting to see how this thing plays out. Um, I mean, I, 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 got, I read the tweet from Tim Sweeney. He's the CEO of Epic. And I mean, he's been tweeting and he's been tweeting up a storm talking about it. Now, this is what he said. He said, Epic is fighting for the basic freedom of all consumers and developers. At the most basic level, we're fighting for the freedom of people who bought a smartphone to install any app that they choose, the freedom for creators of apps to distribute them to, to whoever they want, and the freedom for both groups to do business directly. He goes on to say, we have rights and we need to fight to defend our rights against whoever will deny us our rights, even if it means fighting a beloved company like Apple. I mean, Epic has really picked a fight, and I think this is going to be interesting thing interesting to see how it evolves and develops. We got an email from Lynn in Ohio. Dear Tech Talk, sometimes when I create a new account, I'm given the option of logging in with my Facebook account or logging in with my Gmail credentials or logging in or creating a new account with my email address. Now, why do I have these options? What difference does it make? Well, Lynn, that is a great question. It makes a huge difference. If you ever signed up for an online account and you use your facebook credentials instead of creating a new account with your email account you have just given the company that you are creating the account for full permission to use all of your facebook data they can go in they can pull out all your pictures everything you got on facebook and you've given them that permission whether you like it or not and this, this happens across the board. It, it also applies to any apps that you enable on your Facebook account. So, for instance, sometimes that you want to take a quiz online, but you can't take it until you enable a particular app for Facebook, and then you can take the quiz. Guess what? You've given that company all the rights to your data. And that, I believe, is a huge problem. Now, what you can do to limit the – now, you've probably already given the rights to companies and they've pulled out all your data, so you you can't get that data back. But you can limit future data which is shared with them. You can log into your Facebook account. First of all, change the default privacy level from public to friends. So if you change from public to friends and you don't share anything with the public, then it doesn't matter if they take your data. They don't have access to it uh, if they're not a friend. That's the first thing. The second thing you want to do is set the privacy level of your phone number, your birth date, and your email address in the About page to me only. Don't let anybody see that because, for instance, your birth date uh, might be used uh, useful for identity theft. So don't share that with anybody, just for me. Now, finally, in your Facebook account, you can go in and see which apps have been enabled in which apps you've authorized data sharing my advice would be to go to every one of those apps and disable data sharing unless there's one where you really need it and just go in and see all the apps where you've inadvertently shared data with just get rid of all that if you do those three things you are going to protect your data as much as you can and in the future Do not sign up with Gmail credentials or Facebook credentials. Only sign up with new account credentials with an email address, greater new password. That was a very good question. We got an email from Alicia in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a Windows laptop. Now, when I close the lid, it goes into sleep mode, but I'd rather just have it shut down rather than stay in sleep mode. Is there any way... To have it shut down when I just close it. That'd be really convenient. Alicia in Fairfax. Well it's easy to do and that's a pretty good idea if you're gonna not use your laptop for a few days. It's better just to shut it down than to leave it on in sleep mode. So all you have to do is uh, just go into, uh, uh, open up your laptop, go into Windows, log in, and then go into, um, uh, then you right-click on the Start button and you'll see something called Power Options in the drop-down menu click additional power settings and then choose the power setting relating to closing the lid. That's one of the power settings. Now you'll have two columns. One column is when the laptop is running on a battery and and the other column is when it's plugged into the wall outlet. Now in both columns, simply change the setting when I close the lid to shut down rather than sleep mode and then click save settings. Now, every time you, Close the lid on your laptop; it will just shut down. You don't have to go through the extra steps of shutting down first. And I think that's a pretty good setting for you to use. We got an email from Alex in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I've got two Gateway desktop computers. Neither are operational. Now, one has a bad motherboard, and the other one has a bad power supply. So the question is, can I take the bad, the the good power supply, and replace it? uh, and put it into the laptop with a good motherboard and replace the bad power supply. Now, the problem is the good power supply is uh, 400 watts, and and I'd be replacing a 350-watt power supply, which has gone bad. Can I put in a 400-watt power supply in place for 350-watt power supply? Well, um, you will be able to do that, uh, Alex. Uh, You can always replace a power supply with, with a more powerful power supply, so you can put in a 400 watt power supply and replace the 350 watt power supply. Because your computer is only going to draw as much power as it needs. If it only needs 350 watts, that's all it will draw. What you cannot do is put in a smaller power supply. So if you're, you couldn't put, say, a 200 watt power supply because your computer needs, say, 300 watts. You put 200 watts. It's, it's not going to work for you. So you can always have a larger power supply. Now, you want to make certain you've got the same form factor. That means it's the same size. The screw holes are in the same place. Chances are the form factor will be the same because they manufacturers have pretty much standardized on that. And uh, now, what I suggest whenever you're working inside of a computer, you know, static electricity is a problem. And you can – like if you touch a, a, a circuit board with – and it sparks because of static electricity. You, you can actually, you know, ruin uh, burnout transistors and burnout components. So I always recommend you have an anti-static wrist strap. Now, what that what, means what, is what, you just put that ar- what? around. Yes. That
1: anti-static wrist strap. Does that yes. go with your tinfoil helmet?
2: Yeah. Well, th- tell me about this. St-
1: I, I've never it's, heard of this.
2: What you do is you, you, you put it around your wrist and then you and there's a wire and you, and you clip it to the, to the case of the computer. And then, and then that way you, you you never have a static spark go from your finger to the computer. What if you, there's you, a lightning you, storm? You, well, that it won't help you in a lightning <laughs> storm. You've probably seen this things. When, uh, there's another use when, say, a gas The uh, – uh, they're, they're, they're filling up the gas. The, a big gas truck is filling up the tanks at oh. a gas station. Oh,
1: yeah. You know what? It's like the, when you when – back in my flying days, we had a static strip that we would attach that's to the, exactly the, yes. the wing on the airplane. Yes. Yes. I got that's it. Exactly. the same. Okay. Thing.
2: It, it just eliminates a spark and it just basically puts the two bodies at the same voltage. So there's no spark. Ah. It, it's, I mean, only it, it costs like five bucks. So when you, if you're working inside a computer, that's just a good thing to, uh, to have now. Now the second thing I would recommend, you know, it's really easy to like to pull off all the wires and say, yeah, I'm going to remember this. <laughs> but so many times you say, now did the green wire go here? Or did it go there? So I recommend that you take a lot of pictures before you take the computer apart. Yeah. Because, and don't rely on your memory. I've, listen, I've tried to rely on my memory too many times. I now am a firm believer in taking pictures. Yeah. And if you do this, you will one of a problem. Now, the, now the final uh, suggestion I would make is when you turn off a computer, uh, the, the power supply has big capacitors in it, and it takes them a few minutes to totally discharge. They'll sort of leak off. So I'd recommend you turn off the computer and let it sit for about 10 minutes. Then that way you won't be surprised with a uh, shock from one of those capacitors that's still charged. So best of luck with changing that um, power supply. It's a lot of fun to do. I used to make all my own computers. Now I'm, and I've been spoiled and I just get laptops. But well, I used to love to put together computers. You're a busy lots, guy. And, lots and lots of fun. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Tech Talk, is there any way to block any everyone from tagging me on their posts? Uh, how can I present the, the people from posting stuff on my timeline? Love the podcast, telling in Rockville. Well, Helen, this, this is a problem. Somebody tags you, you know, and you know it might be a picture that you don't want everybody to see, and they tag you, and then it shows right up on your timeline. Might be at that party last weekend, and <laughs> you, you didn't look that good.
1: With a lampshade on your head.
2: Exactly. And so and so, you know, and so there it is possible, even though people tag you to control what shows up on your timeline. Now, there's no way to stop people from tagging you. They can do that. They can do that with uh, without a problem. But if they do tag you, you can keep that tagged photo from showing up on your timeline. Now, what you want to do, you log into your Facebook account and click on the down arrow on the far right side of the blue bar near the top of the Facebook window, then click settings. And then you click on timeline, you click on the timeline and tagging link on the left column, and then you find something that's called who can post on your timeline, and then you edit that link and you change the settings either to friends or to me only. And then, uh, so that means just uh, only friends or you can post things on the timeline, not anybody from the public. Now, the critical thing is it says review. Put review on in both sections. Put review on. Now, what that means is somebody tags you. It's not posted to your timeline until you review it. And if you don't accept it, it doesn't go on the timeline. And that will fix your problem. Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at Talk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we
1: can. It's Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, 1077 fmhd 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu.
2: Frances Elizabeth Allen is an American computer scientist and a pioneer in the fields of compiler optimization and computer parallelization. She follows in the footsteps of Grace Hopper, who wrote the first compiler. Now, a compiler, if I just have a sidebar here, you you have a high-level language like Fortran and you can write English-like sentences to actually tell the computer to do things. And a compiler takes that English-like high-level language and translates it into assembly language, which is in the end a bunch of zeros and ones. And zeros and ones are basically what the computer is expecting to see. So the compiler is the bridge between the high-level language and the low-level language. And she, and she worked on optimizing compilers. Very, very important work that she did. Now, she was born 1932, and she grew up in a small farm in upstate New York. Now, Fran was the uh, eldest of six children. She was raised on a dairy farm, and her house had no electricity, no plumbing, and no central heat. So she was, ba- she was basically um, you know able to uh, just survive in that environment. Now, she was really quite good in, uh, in math. And so she excelled in math in in school, and she studied math. She ended up getting some math scholarships, and uh, she did very well. So she showed a very, very quick interest in mathematics. Now, she went to the New York State College for teachers, and she got a bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1954. Now, this is kind of a common theme for women back in the early 50s. You see, working on computers and working in technology, well— that was a man's world women no women did not get into that field at all women became teachers women became nurses so she went to a teachers college because she was a woman and she got a bachelor's degree in mathematics and she uh, and then uh, and then she then she started working as a as a high school mathematics teacher now she taught for a couple of years but she realized that if she wanted to teach high school And teach mathematics at high school. She'd have to get a master's degree. So she went back to school. And she went to the University of Michigan. And she got a master's degree in mathematics in 1957. And she began teaching school again in Peru, New York. Now, while she was in graduate school, even though she was a woman, she managed to take a computer class. And she was working with a room sized computer and she was programming it to do elaborate mathematical calculations. She was completely fascinated with this field. Now, once she got out of school, she had all this big student loan debt and she says, You know, I'm going to have, I got to pay this thing off. So she decides she needs to get a job temporarily that earned, that paid more than a teacher's salary. So she was. Uh, so it turned out that that when she got her master's degree, IBM was there, and they were interviewing for jobs. So, uh, and so IBM hired her uh, to work in the IBM research facility there, and uh, and she said, "Look, I'll, I'm going to take this job with IBM, I, and I'm you know I'm a woman. I shouldn't even be there. I'll take this for a year or so, and I'll then I'll pay off my student loans, and I'll go back to my real career, which is like teaching high school." So she went to IBM, uh, she started working at IBM July 15th, 1957. Now, what IBM did, they had just released the Fortran programming language back in 57. That was really the first high-level programming language that had been, uh, you know, widely used. And, um, And they had a compiler that had been written. Grace Hopper was one of the people contributing to that project. I think a guy by the name of Bacchus was the actual, uh, Grace Hopper was sort of the inspiration behind it, and a guy by the name of Bacchus wrote the, uh, the compiler. And, and IBM was trying to roll out this high-level language at the time, and they needed somebody to teach the scientists on, you know, how to write, how to program in Fortran and create their, their programming language. Now, back then, there was this culture of computers. Computers were in these big rooms, uh, the only people that could write programs for them were almost like cathedral priests. It's like the <laughs> computer was the cathedral, and they wrote in assembly language, and they would hush tones, and they would write in assembly language, and and mere mortals, like like the physicists out there, <laughs> the mere mortals. At, at, at Bell Labs, are like working on stuff. The mere mortals could um, could could never do anything in the cathedral. Well, it, you see what happened was this Fortran came along. And instead of having the cathedral priests write the assembly language, Fortran had a compiler, and it took the high-level language that, well, just just a mortal person could actually write, one of the physicists there who was working on something, and the compiler would create the assembly language code, and then it would run on the computer. And it did not require the cathedral priests to do anything. Ah, So there was a huge upheaval with an IBM IBM wanted to push Fortran out there was a lot of skepticism so they said they called her Fran her mom called her Frances Elizabeth they said Fran we want you to set up classes after all Fran was a teacher and we want you to teach Fortran to all the physicists here the electrical engineers teach them how to use the computer so she went into IBM and there was this huge resistance with this Fortran programming language and she started teaching there started teaching Fortran and what she really was became fascinated by she started looking at the Fortran compiler and she was amazed that that compiler could write assembly language code as efficiently as the cathedral priests could do it so she became totally captivated with compiler development and compiler optimization. So it turned out she was there. She was only planning to stay one or two years, pay off her student loan. She ended up staying at IBM for 45 years. Wow! And she focused on compiler research. Now the uh, so here, here's the case. You see this? She wasn't. She was even hired for this tech job. She just got there and she was just she was just good at it. So her first assignment uh, after she finished her her teaching was that she worked on IBM's Stretch Harvest Project in the early 50s and 60s. And uh, she was one of three uh, designers who were writing the compiler for that. Now this uh, Stretch Harvest Project, this was really, uh, really written for uh, classified applications where basically the... Uh, um, you know, the, the government was going to do very uh, classified calculations, say rega- relating to nuclear bomb design at Los Alamos, and so she they were writing a uh, an extremely uh, it was new hardware, and they were writing a compiler an optimized compiler for the new hardware, and during that process of developing the IBM Stretch Harvest compiler, she developed many techniques. For compiler optimization. Now, is it, they, they delivered this stretch uh, um, harvest uh, machine. It was the IBM 7030. They they delivered it the Los Alamos in 1961. Now, it was uh, it was considered a, actually a failure initially when they when they when they delivered it. But the the technology that was d- developed for it lived on. Now she was uh, now Francis Fran as they called her. She was the language liaison with a, with another project customer called the National Security Agency and she helped build and design alpha which was a high level code breaking language where they were uh, <clears throat> trying to break trying to analyze you know encrypted messages and break the codes and she worked on that and she at that time was the and they had to develop more optimized compilers for this application. And she kept working on that, even though it was it was fully classified. But the basic principles were, you know, she kept and she kept using. Now, from 1962 to 68, she worked on an experimental compiler for IBM's advanced computer system. And what she did, she designed and built a machine-independent, a language-independent optimization component for the compiler. Now, this is pretty interesting. You see, it it's... It, it will optimize the code no matter what the high-level language is and no matter what the underlying software is. She, she found a way to abstract the problem to achieve optimization. This was extremely, extremely innovative. Now, she partitioned and formalized the problem space, and she provided a context for thinking about better solutions, And this was, uh, you know, really influential. During that time, do I mention this? Yeah. She wrote several influential papers about compiler optimization that became the standards in the industry. Her technical leadership then in parallelization uh, was, uh, was also highly influential. You see, IBM got the idea. Well, many people got the idea. Instead of building a single processor goes faster, 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 because eventually uh, the processor gets so hot it can't go any faster. Why don't you get a lot of cheap processors and run them all in parallel and have a lot of parallel processing? Well, that means you've got to write the code so that you can divvy up the work, send it out to all the processors, bring it back together, and have the answer synchronized. So you had to you had to parallelize the uh, the compiler so she actually worked on compiler optimization for parallel processing and she worked on the what they called the parallel translator the ptran and she had a huge impact on the science and technology behind parallel systems. Now, her work has been really highly recognized. She uh, sh- she became the first female IBM fellow back in 1989. She became a fellow for the IEEE Association of Computing Machinery. She was inducted into the WITI Hall of Fame. That's the Women in Technology Hall of Fame. When she retired in 2002, she won the Ada Augusta Ada Lovelace Award from the Association for Women in Computing. Now, most significantly, in 2006, she was recognized for her work in high-performance computing when she became the first woman to receive the Turing Award. And the AM Turing Award, that is basically the Nobel Prize Award in computing. She won that, the first woman to receive it. Now, she also mentored young women. She spent a lot of time encouraging young young women to enter this man's field. And she uh, created a mentorship program with an IBM to bring young women along and bring them into the technology. Now, interestingly enough, her hobby was mountain climbing. She loved the mountain climbing. She says mountain climbing is a lot like uh, compiler optimization. You've got to, you look at the mountain and then you've got to figure out the optimum path to get up the mountain. And so she thought the problem solving that she went through in mountain climbing had similar parallel thinking that she had in compiler optimization. Mm -hmm. It was an, it was an interesting connection. Now this mountain climbing and she she, I mean, one, I mean, she also, she hiked across the, uh, a portion of the, um, you know, of Antarctica. She did it without a map. I mean, kind of dangerous. She, yeah, she was, really. an, she was an adventurer.
1: Did she at least who, have a coat?
2: Yeah, well, she had a coat, but she was, she was very athletic and she loved this mountain climbing. She was a member of the American Alpine Club, but most significantly, she was also a member of the Alpine Club of Canada. Ah. <laughs> Now, she did exploratory expeditions to the
1: Chinese-Tibet border. Yes? Uh, (laughs) You were saying, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Yeah.
2: Now, she she did exploratory expeditions to the Arctic and to the Chinese-Tibet border. She died August 4th, 2020, on her 88th birthday Mm. from complications with Alzheimer's. So she was a remarkable lady, and I really enjoyed reading her and looking at some of her videos and looking at her quest to optimize compilers so there you go everything you'd want to know about francis elizabeth
1: allen hope you were paying attention because coming up after the commercial you're going to have a chance to win free lunch we're going to play the pop quiz coming up on the uh, On Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and southwest of Washington now, you can hear us on 1077 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up
0: in a moment.
3: Featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz.
2: Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love this virtual audience. They're so enthusiastic. They
1: they do receive you warmly, but from a distance. I know, yes, they do.
2: Of course, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airway. Yep. And we have to assess whether our listeners have been learning anything. And we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they finally open after the coronavirus um, experience. experience. Uh, And you'll also uh, get A-plus for today's show if you get the right answer. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Frances Elizabeth Allen. She, of course, is a pioneer in the field of compiler optimization. She spent 45 years at IBM, but there's something noteworthy about her. She had a very interesting hobby. What was her hobby?
3: If you know the answer to today's question, sanitize your hands, put on your mask, move six feet away from your phone, and dial us now. If you're calling from west of the Rockies, is 877-936-9333. If you're buried under a mountain of oyster shells in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, It's 877-936-9333. If you're programming your room-sized computer in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. We leave it outside so it's purified by sunlight. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church.
1: I believe some of our listeners have put us on speed dial, Doc. Oh, that's good. They're yeah, coming the phone's in already fast. ringing.
2: So let's talk about the Democratic National Convention and the Republic National Convention. They are going completely virtual. It's going to be very interesting. The yeah. uh, Democratic National Convention is going to kick off on Monday, and it's going to be mostly online, and the Republicans are, are going to kick off a week later. Now, they've been forced to go online because of the coronavirus um, social distancing requirement. And this is going to be the biggest test test yet for conducting a huge remote event. Now, they're Uh, going to try to create the enthusiasm of the high production streaming events that they normally have in these huge convention centers. Now, the Democrats convention begins on Monday uh, after about a one month delay. And all the most visible figures are going to be speaking virtually, including former President uh, Barack Obama. The Republicans will have their convention August 24th. Now, these conventions date back to the 1800s. And originally, they were raucous, spontaneous events filled with backroom deals and political horse trading. But now, there's no drama. No, They're scripted. Yep. They're choreographed. And we all we know who the nominees are before they even begin. Nothing is up in the air. They're ba- basically theatrics. Now, viewers can stream the Democratic National Convention on mobile devices through social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube channels. They can also stream it on Apple TV. They can stream it on Roku. They can stream it on Amazon Fire TV or an Amazon Prime Video. So, there are a lot of ways to see this thing through streaming. So and, you, and that means you can just basically watch it 24/7. You don't have to depend on you know broadcast programming. Now plans for the Republican convention that uh, are, are a little bit up in the air because they've been trying. They couldn't decide if they're going to have it, not have it. I mean originally they were going to uh, you know have it in North Carolina, then Florida. Now it's back to North Carolina. Now they're going to they're 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 going to have a virtual system, and uh, Trump is mulling whether he should have it at the White House or or at the Civil War battleground in Gettysburg, his speech, and it looks like the White House is the preferred location. So he might speak there. He won't won't even be at the the venue wherever they have it. Uh, The GOP will live stream the formal renomination process, and that involves 336 delegates. There will be six or seven from each state, and they'll all be voting with social distancing, and that will be live streamed. But this will be interesting to see how this actually works out. I'm sort of interested to see how the technology all works. It'll be a fun, uh, two fun events to watch.
1: I'm curious to see what the pr- production value is, you know? Yeah, and, and whether,
2: if they have any snafus. I'm going to be looking
1: like, for snafus. Like like a, a hijacked <laughs> Zoom call or something like
2: that. <laughs> yeah, or the audio doesn't work or the video doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting because I don't think, Necessarily, all the candidates are ready for this right. for this particular venue, but it'll be interesting it's, to watch. I'm going to be checking on the technology, and you know we'll we'll report back on how they all we'll we'll sort of give an a post mortem on how they came out after they're over.
1: It's new territory, so something is is bound to go wrong, don't you think? I I yeah, and I I hope so. Yeah, that's what will make you, it. That's what will
2: make it interesting. You hope so? <laughs> I'm looking for snafus. Listen to you. <laughs> all
1: right, let's. Uh, we've got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's go to line. Um, Pardon me here. Let's go to line uh, two. I'm messing this up here. Bear with me one second. All right. And all right, here we go. We're going to line two, I think. And this is going to be MC calling from Silver Spring. MC, are you you there? MC? Hello, MC, are are you there? Let's try this another way then. Good morning, MC from Silver Spring. Are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? All right, Doc, go ahead and ask the question.
2: Very good. Earlier in the show, we talked about Frances Elizabeth Allen. Uh, She, of course, was a woman who worked on compiler optimization. But what was her hobby, though? That's a very interesting hobby.
1: Yeah, as I said, this is Realton MC Ara from Silver Spring, right. and uh, her hobby was mountain climbing. That is correct, MC. Oh, that is correct. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hang on, sir. We're going to put you back on hold, send you back to Andrew. who will get your information, and we'll send the prize out to you. It is uh, Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, 1077 FM HD 2 in the suburb southwest of Washington, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. We'll be more, back with more of Tech Talk in just a moment.
0: If it's technology,
1: it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
0: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Observations from the bunker.
1: you think you'd fix the door by now I mean
2: you would think so I'm gonna to have to get some grease down here in the bunker but
1: you know yeah. at least it opens
2: So I'm happy with that
1: it opens yes that's you have to get out sometime
2: so earlier in the show I was talking about how uh, you know Facebook data be sharing because basically take your privacy away and that started me thinking about sort of the dangers of this mass amount of personal information being out on the internet. Artificial intelligence armed with machine learning is like a totalitarian nightmare. Mm-hmm. And we should actually take note. Individualistic Western societies are built on the idea that no one, no one knows our thoughts, our joys, our desires better than we do. But AI with artificial intelligence is going to change this. Big Brother will know us better than we know ourselves. A government armed with AI could claim that they know what people truly want and what makes them happy. And at best, they'll use this to justify paternalism and at worst, totalitarianism. You know, it always starts out really looking good down this path, but it ends up... A nightmare.
1: But George or- Orwell warned us of all of this, did he not? That's
2: right. So to present, prevent this nightmare, we must not allow others to know more about ourselves than we do. We cannot allow a self-knowledge gap. Now, AI allows centralizing powers to monitor citizens, to know more about them than they know about themselves. China has embraced AI to the fullest. Now, big tech companies collect huge amounts of data. Machine learning algorithms use this data to calculate what we will do, who we are, and when we're going to do it. AI can predict what films we like, the news that we want to read, who we want to be friends with on Facebook. From our Facebook likes, AI can predict our religious, political views, personality, intelligence, drug use, happiness. Lenin once said that capitalists will sell him the rope that he could use to hang them with AI with machine learning and our tech and our tech firms in Silicon Valley have created a tool and they're ready to sell it to anybody. AI with machine learning is Lenin's rope. Mm. Now one way to prevent the self-knowledge gap is to raise our privacy shields. I mean, this is extremely important and I just don't think enough, Focus is being put on it. Now, cryptocurrencies actually enable privacy because you can actually trade money without being tracked by centralized sources. Privacy reduces the ability of others to know us and then use this knowledge to manip- manipulate us for their own profit. So I believe, A, that individuals must start focusing more on their own personal privacy, and B, I think that our large tech firms need to be firmly grounded in ethical use of data. And we probably need philosophers and others on panels that will help provide a moral compass for these tech companies because I think they're losing their way. So there you go. Observations from the bunker, just something to think about.
1: I think we should just keep it right here through the end of the program, Doc. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. Okay. Sometimes I have great ideas. Very you are right on top of
2: it. I'm going to skip (laughs) to something that I think is really important. There's a new Linux malware out, and it's the real deal, and it is dangerous. In fact, it's so serious that the FBI and NSA have issued a joint report warning that Russian state hackers are using a previously unknown piece of Linux malware called Drovorub. (laughs) <laughs> to stealthily infiltrate sensitive networks and steal confidential information and execute malicious commands. Drovo rub is a full-featured toolkit, and it's gone undetected until recently. Now, the malware connects to command and control servers operated by a hacking group that works for the GRU. That's Russia's military intelligence. And it has been tied to more... And, this, and they have been tied for more than a decade to many advanced... Uh, Uh, hacking campaigns, and they've inflicted serious damage on the U.S. national security. Now, DROVO-RUB toolset includes four main components. It's got the client that infects the Linux device. It's got the kernel module that uses rootkit tactics to gain persistence and hide its presence from operating system and security defenses. If you can use what's called a rootkit, it basically loads as the operating system is loading and it masks itself from detection. So you can run antivirus software and it can't detect the rootkit. The server, it also, the fourth, the third element is a server that runs the attack operated infrastructure to control infected machines and receive stolen data. It's basically the traffic cop that's handling all this data that's coming in. And then there's an agent that uses the compromised servers or attacker, attack, attack, attacker control machines to act as an intermediary between machines and servers. Those are the four elements of this system. Now, Dovo Rub goes to great lengths to camouflage traffic passing in and out of the infected network. It runs as an unfettered, unfettered root privilege, which means it's got absolute control over the machine, and they can do anything they want with it. Now, Drovo, by the way, is slang for driver. And so uh, so DrovoRub, basically it's a slang name that means security driver slayer. Mm-hmm. So they're going to slay the drivers in the kernel. Now, agency officials have said a key defense against Drovo Rub is to ensure that all security updates are installed. The advisory also urges at a minimum that the servers want Linux kernel version 3.7 or later so that organizations can, improved, can use improved code signing protection. This is going to keep, uh, it's going to make it, uh, if they have that kernel 3.7 or newer, it means they, they can't really install the rootkit. System owners are advised to configure their system to load only modules with valid digital signatures, which makes it even more difficult for bad actors to get their software on the machine. So this actually is something that's extremely important. And organizations that are running Linux servers need to go out and look at the uh, security alerts on Drovo Rub and take the necessary precautions because this is actively being used by bad actors. Interesting. Now, let's talk about... Counterfeit network. Uh, you know, let, let's just keep on with the bad news.
1: Of, why for not? A, for a little bit, like longer. <laughs> everybody else. Why? 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 bend from what everybody else is doing.
2: Yeah. So there's there, there's a problem with uh, counterfeit networking equipment. See, one one way. I mean, another way to penetrate a, a network is is to put in counterfeit network equipment, and then you can control the traffic. You can have a backdoor on the on the on the uh, on the equipment, and so there's an effort to uh, to, have, to uh, uh, of companies to make. Uh, bad actors to make counterfeit network equipment. Now, there was a recent investigation by the cybersecurity company F-Secure. They released it on July 15th, and they were detailing, they analyzed counterfeit equipment. They were analyzing the Cisco Catalyst 2690 X-Series switches. These are basically um, Ethernet switches that are put uh, at the heart of a network. We used to run it straight. We've, we've got a lot of 20, you know 2,900 series switches. It's, it's a standard switch mm-hmm. that you run. Now the investigation centered on a pair of a pair of uh, counterfeit network switches and they determined that the counterfeits were designed to bypass processes that authenticate system components because Cisco tries to authenticate their gear and so they bypass that authentication step. The counterfeits were discovered by an IT company after a software update stopped them from working. At the company's request, F-Secure uh, Consulting performed a thorough analysis of the counterfeits to determine the security imp- implications. Now, this is a real life report. It's a detailed technical analysis of how the devices work. It illustrates how existing intellectual property can be compromised, dupl- duplicated, and security protection bypassed to make almost perfect clones. Now they can out these counterfeit units operated outside the bounds of legitimate. Device work, outside the bounds of legitimate and authenticated firmware. Uh, they basically had their own firmware, and they basically faked the authentication. Now, they were discovered when an update failed. So it's very important to make certain that all your network devices are updated to the latest uh, latest version of the, uh, of the operating system. And in many cases, the update will fail the process. So that's how they were actually detected. So if you want to protect yourself from counterfeit devices, and, you know, now many, many of these, de- oh, they also determined that there was no backdoor in these devices. These were just companies that were trying to trade on Cisco and na- Cisco's name and make a quick buck. So they were just basically selling Cisco equipment and at, at, at a big markup, but still cheaper than Cisco sold it. So... If you want to protect yourself from counterfeit devices, source all your devices from authorized resellers. Don't go for the cheapest one that you get off of eBay. Ensure that all devices run the latest available software provided by the vendors. Many counterfeit units fail to run uh, when you put up the, put in the latest software. Note any small physical differences between units of the same product. Look, look at them very carefully. And look for any suspicious console output messages like authentication steps failing. Okay, this would be kind of a clue when they're bypassing normal authentication. You might get in there, there'll be a log of, of actions, You might, and you see a suspicious log entry means you've got something going on. Now, Cisco does provide a serial number health check to help with detection. So you can download that health check problem to see whether... Uh, Cisco could detect that it's a uh, that it's a fake device. I think this is really something worth worth focusing on because it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Now let me talk in just the last, last couple minutes on something that uh, it's kind of interesting. It's tip of the week: how to access a flash website, a website that runs Flash, you've got an iPad or an iPhone. Now I don't know if you remembered it, but Steve Jobs hated Flash because he said it was poorly written, yeah. it was a resource hog, it all, all all kinds of security issues. So from the very beginning, none of the Apple devices would run any 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 website any flash any flash program that was required by a website. Uh, now Flash has since been supplanted with other technologies like HTML5 or Java jo- JavaScript. It's no longer a big component, but some legacy sites still have it. And if you're working on a legacy site and you need it and you want to get it on your iPhone, how do you do it? Well, there is a way to, to handle it. There's a way to get around that problem with Flash. And uh, basically uh, basically, all you have to do is download a server, uh, I mean a, um, a browser, and there's a browser called Puffin, P-U-F-F-I-N. P-U-F-F-I-N. There's a browser up. It's $4.99. You can download it on the iPhone or the iPad. And what it does, it takes the website and it renders the Flash on a remote server. So the Flash program itself is not running on the iPhone. And then what it does, it streams the results from the remote server to the iPhone or the iPad. So you feel like you're you're actually interacting with the Flash website, but actually the remote server is interacting with it and you're just getting the stream. It's kind of a clever workaround. so if you're working on a legacy site and you just got to just got to talk to a um a a, a a legacy flash website uh puffin is a very good option there's also another browser they're called the photon x flash player you can download that application and that will work that will work perfectly oh my goodness the time went so fast we love your emails Email us at techtalk at Stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them you heard about their programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.